Calvary Chapel, Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 13, with Pastor John King. Happy Father's Day. You guys have seen that picture uh, that shows uh, two pictures side by side. One, one side, it's a Mother's Day picture, and it's got a beautiful bouquet of flowers. And then the other side, it's a Swanson's TV dinner. I think it's meatloaf for Father's Day. And then to top it off, tomorrow's the longest day of the year, so us fathers get to work that much harder. I'm just saying, it's our day. Oh, I'm sorry, Tony, I'm sorry. All right, that worked good this morning in practice, but it wasn't all that great for you guys. So happy Father's Day. Let's turn to our Bibles. We're going to be in Mark 13. We're going to start uh, a two-part series on the tribulation. Chapter 13 is a two-part. Actually, it leads over into 14, but 13 really does cover, this, this chapter really covers, uh, in the beginning of it anyway, the two halves, if you will, of the tribulation period, the three and a half years, and then the great tribulation, three and a half years from the middle. Last week we followed Jesus' public teaching ministry at the temple. It was his final public teaching ministry in the book of Mark. And he was asked a very sincere question. Which is the first commandment of all? I mean, given that now there's over 600 precepts to go by in Jewish law, which can we boil it down to one simple one? And of course, Jesus was quick to answer. But we do know that they were, again, they were trying to get him to, to make a mistake, to, uh, to say something uh, as a test, like a political gaffe, if you will which would try to discredit Jesus. But that never happens. It never happens in Jesus' conversations. He is never discredited by anybody. And the problem with these enemies was, first off, Jesus had, had established his authority. And so he, had, he was answered all their questions this far. And so this was kind of a futile attempt on their part. And it kind of backfired because the person that asked the question, the scribe, um, he was actually starting to warm up to the idea of Jesus as the Messiah. And so uh, they, were, they, didn't, they stopped asking questions after that. And that set the stage for him to ask his question. He didn't waste any time. He's, uh, first, you know, we know he, he gave him the first commandment, then the second. But then again, you know, after he gave the first two commandments, he had a question of his own. He says, how is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David uh, and, you know, the Lord? And he says from quoting Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. I mean, how does it, how does that work out? How, how does it, how would David call somebody his Lord if it was his offspring and, you know, down the line? So he was given these religious leaders a chance to acknowledge that their view of the Messiah was deficient. It was weak. Jesus wasn't simply a great man in the line of David. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, David knew that his was an earthly kingdom. One that would come through, yet a, a greater one, Jesus would come through the earthly lineage. And here he was, Jesus, once again, the Messiah, God in the flesh, standing right before these teachers and these scribes and Pharisees and all these leaders, and they didn't recognize him, or they refused to recognize him. Today we're going to look at the first, as I was saying earlier, the first of a two-part teaching about one of Jesus' most important sermons. It's known as the Olivet Discourse. 
And this is a private sermon with his disciples while he's sitting on the Mount of Olives. Jesus gave them instructions concerning the end of the age and the destruction of Jerusalem. It's a very pivotal message for Jesus as he prepares uh, after this message, he starts to prepare for his Passover, the Passover, and then his crucifixion. So let's read through our passage for today. Mark 13, verses 1 through 13. Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will say. But whatever is given to you in that hour, speak that, for it is not you who speak but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and his, a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word, and we ask, Lord, that you would clear off the, the, the desk, the table, whatever... Uh, clutter we have sitting before us in our minds, whatever worries of the day or the week, the present troubles that we are in. Lord, they come as no surprise to you, but you've brought us here today for a special time once again. We're gathered in your name as a body of believers. And Lord, this is a time that you speak to us through your word. Thank you, Lord, that we get to do that. Thank you for, again, the, the worship time that we had and the time of fellowship and the time of prayer this morning. Lord, we just want to do business with you now once again. We want to open our hearts. We want to open our minds to the truth. Lord, you're attractive to us because you're gentle and you're lowly and you're, you take our, our afflictions upon us, upon you. And so, Lord, we draw into you, we draw near to you this morning. Go before us now as we study your word. I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. So we start off with Jesus here in verse, the first two verses, where Jesus is now going to predict the destruction of the temple. He's alluded to it, he's, been, he's said it, we've said it many times as we've gone through Mark, and as we come through the end here, we see here, 
And, he, and it says here, then as he went out of the temple, you know, they just finished this discourse with the scribes and, and the, all the teaching at the temple, and he'd answered their questions and silenced them. And so now he's alone once again with his disciples, and one of his disciples said to him, teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are there. In other words, look at this beautiful temple. Look at this beautiful building. Luke puts it this way. He says, then as some spoke of the temple how it was adorned with beautiful stone, stones and donations. It was just beautiful picture. Uh, John MacArthur writes it this way. He says, Situated atop the plateau above the Kidron Valley, east of the city, the temple and its surrounding buildings stood as one of the architectural marvels of the ancient world. Built of polished white stone with its eastern wall covered with gold, the temple's main structure gleamed in the evening light, as if it were a massive jewel. The impressive temple complex contained numerous porticos, colonnades, patios, and courtyards, enabling tens of thousands of worshipers to congregate and to present their offerings and sacrifices. So these guys were in awe. They're like, you know, his, his disciples are like, Lord, look at, look at this beautiful building. You know, we often say it when we see something beautiful, whether it's a beautiful vista, a beautiful uh, nature scene, or at the ocean, or in mountains, or we see a, a beautiful structure. Uh, it's just, you know, it can be awe-inspiring. But Jesus says this. He starts now, you know, Jesus doesn't mince and he doesn't waste any time. And Jesus answered him. He says, oh, do you see these great buildings? Now, what great buildings are we talking about? Well, Herod the Great started an extensive renovation project in 20 BC. He renovated the temple and he greatly expanded the complex to a size of approximately 35 square acres. That's how big this area is, massive. The renovation was still underway through Jesus' time and was finally completed in the early 60s, AD 60s, you know, all the way through Jesus' time and all the way through the early days of the apostles. Shortly, of course, before its destruction in A.D. 70. Once the temple complex was completed, it became the largest building site in the ancient world. It was twice the size of the Roman Forum. And he says, you see all these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. You know, I imagine somebody telling you, you know, it'd be like, you know, maybe, I, I, I don't want to pick a bad example, but looking at a massive structure and somebody stands in there and you say, man, this is a beautiful thing. And somebody says, yeah, it's all going to fall down. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know. But here's Jesus. He's being very prophetic in what he's saying. Not one stone. Now, when, when Herod, or excuse me, Herod, when he expanded the temple complex during this massive renovation we talked about, they used enormous stone blocks, some as much as 40 feet long, weighing as much as 100 tons. They were necessary to contain all the fill that they were going to put into this, the base, this, the foundation of this massive temple complex. It had to be able to support the weight of the structures when they filled it. And you had all these massive walls, only one of them still standing. And he says, uh, not one stone shall be left upon another, it, not, not thrown down. To be thrown down means to de destroy or to demolish. Within 40 years of Jesus' prophecy here, as he's, he's standing and talking to his disciple, it is not identified, 
as a result of the ongoing Jewish re revolts, because after Jesus' time, you know, the, there were periods of time where the Jews revolted against their Roman oppressors. They're known as the Jewish Wars. And that, in AD 70, historically, that's when it would be destroyed. It was actually destroyed. The Romans had controlled Israel's territories since 63 B.C. And by 70 A.D., between the internal religious factions, the people that we were talking about that joined in league against Jesus, and a growing nationalistic revolutionary movement led by the Sicarii Zealots, they were very violent towards the Romans. Rome was forced to deal with the violence head-on, straight-on, directly. So the Roman Emperor Vespasian sent his son Titus to lead a siege against Jerusalem in the spring of A.D. 70. By the end of the summer, the city fell and the temple was destroyed. One writer put it this way, As human instruments of divine wrath, the Romans lit massive fires that caused the stones to crumble in the intense heat. By the time they were finished dismantling the temple, having taken all the gold and thrown the remaining rubble into the Kidron Valley, all that was left were massive foundation stones that formed footings for the retaining wall under the Temple Mount. Elements that were not part of the structure itself, but as the Lord predicted with perfect accuracy, the temple and its surrounding buildings were completely demolished under the judgment of God. That, that answers the question. You say, why is God allowing these, this great, massive, beautiful temple that was originally designed to worship Him and His presence would actually fill the temple, His glory would fill the temple? Why is He going to allow it to be destroyed? Well, God's judgment had come to the Jews. Luke 19, verses 41 through 43, excuse me, 44, you know, it says, now you can see it there, as he drew near, he saw the city, and he wept over it. When he was coming into the city earlier in the week, and he spoke, he says, if you had known, even you, especially this in your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come when you, uh, upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave uh, in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation because you rejected your Messiah David Guzik points out something we need to keep in mind as we talk about prophecy the literal fulfillment of this prophecy establishes the tone for the rest of the prophecies in the chapter. We should expect a literal fulfillment for these other prophecies also. We're studying uh, prophetic you know, prophecies on, on Wednesday nights. We're going through 31 signs of, of, of the end of the age and prophecies and beyond. And we, we always, uh, we want to, here at Calvary Chapel and many churches, we approach the Bible as though it's literal and true, unless the Bible gives us a reason not to. Because when you get into the habit of switching, the, turning the switch on and off, turning on, oh, it's literal now, oh, no, I'll switch it now, it's allegory then. 
A good example is all the prophecies of Jesus' first uh, coming were fulfilled, right? They were literally fulfilled of when the Messiah would come. Why on earth would you take his second coming and start to allegorize it and make it into symbols? I don't understand why you would do that. And I don't see where you have the authority to do that. Not in God's scripture. That said, little rabbit trail. So Jesus starts here in verse 3, and he's going to talk about the sign and times of the end of the age. It says, now has he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple? So they asked the question as they were leaving the temple. He gave them the answer. He prophesied its destruction. And it really, it shut their mouths pretty quick. It's not recorded that they said anything as they walked through the valley and up to the Mount of Olives on their way back to Bethany for another night. And as they stopped to take a break, perhaps, he, he stopped on the Mount of Olives. And remember, we said the Mount of Olives, at, cer- at one certain point, at a certain peak, it sat directly across from the temple. You could sit on the Mount of Olives and you could see the temple. Even to this day, you can see the, the Dome of the Rock. You see the temple. So what a perfect backdrop illustration to take this break to hear these coming questions. And it says that Peter, John, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, It was a private discussion. Only Mark names them. And it's just an interesting thing. You know, while standing near the temple and hearing Jesus prophesy of its coming destruction, no doubt that these disciples were like, wow, what? (laughs) Did you hear what he just said? You know, saying to themselves, he, I mean, this beautiful temple is going to be, it's going to be torn down. No stone will be left. And so they're walking with Jesus. And, you know, it's so, it's so, what a blessing to walk with Jesus and to be able to ask him questions and to hear answers from him, mainly through his word. But we'll always hear his assurance that he's with us if we seek him earnestly. Now, we need to remember that these disciples were Jews, and every Jew considered the temple to be one of the most holiest and sacred places on the entire earth. So he, he really did rock their world when he said that the coming tragic uh, demise of this beautiful temple, that, that you know, a lot of people worship things, and they had issues with that. The Jews had issues with worshiping idol, making an idol out of God's things. So the four disciples, they approached Jesus, and they had basically had two questions. Two questions, but they kind of wanted to know the answer to three coming events, really. And they wanted to know, first of all, verse 4, it says, Tell us, when? When will these things be? And <laughs> you got our attention now. And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? So question one, tell us when these things will be. When's that going to happen? That's referring to the coming destruction of the temple in AD 70. But question two, and he says, and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? You know, we know a sign is sort of like a token of future events. To be fulfilled means to come, to pass. I mean, it's very simple. Even in the English and Greek, it's the same. But when you look over at Matthew's account of the same situation, Matthew 24, 3, 
When you look at his account, it says here, uh, you notice that they're seeking answers to three future events. First of all, uh, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be. So that's the first future event, these things. And, the, and we are, know that he's referring to what he just told them about the destruction of the temple. But the next thing they want to know is, what will be the sign of your coming? Okay, they're starting to get the idea that he is going to go because he's been telling them, he says, I'm going to die, I'm going to be crucified, and then I'm going to be raised again after three days, and I'm going to heaven, but I'm coming back. He's told them all this. And so they're saying, what will be the sign of your coming? This is known as the parousia. This is his presence being. It denotes his arrival and his presence. Now, something to keep in mind, when we talk about Jesus' coming, it's kind of a dual thing here. First of all, his return at the rapture to come call the church to him and then take them, take us, you know, to heaven, the place that he's prepared for us, to be with the Father. And then there is, of course, the second coming of Christ. When he comes to earth and everybody sees it and everybody can't, you cannot deny it, and he judges the nations. And he brings us back with him. It's pretty cool. Thank you, Lord. Now, later in Matthew 24, he he was very explicit. Matthew 24, 27, talking about his second coming, he said, this is what it's going to look like. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Everybody's going to see it. And it's going to be right there. So tell us when these things will be. That's an event, the destruction of the temple. What will be the sign of your coming? And he tells them later in the same chapter. And then they said, another event, they said, well, what, what about the end of the age? How's that going to work out? Now, it's important that we keep in mind something very, very important. In their minds, they thought that all three of these events were going to happen at the same time. I mean, you would be scared too, wouldn't you? If you thought all that, that the temple was going to be destroyed, that Jesus was coming, the end of the world was going to happen all at the same time. And so therefore, this gives him an opportunity to explain in much more detail. As I said before, we're currently engaged in a midweek study called the Book of Signs. All through the Bible, miraculous signs are used by God to validate the work of prophets, apostles, and of course, Jesus, the Messiah. Even to this day, when you see a a rainbow, it's a sign and a promise from God. And we can know that as our faith increases, the need for signs to bolster our faith tends to decrease. But that said, we can also testify of God's miracles. We can testify how our faith is seen Prayer after prayer being answered. Why do we keep coming back here and asking for prayer? Why do you go to the Lord in prayer every day and every week? Because God answers prayers. So signs showing God's promises and His return someday are all around us. Globally, economically, morally, environmentally. And they have been all throughout history. But there is a difference coming. The signs of His coming will increase and intensify greatly right before the end of Jerusalem and the end of the world as we know it. 
there will be a period known as the beginnings of sorrows. And we'll see that text today. That's in Mark 13, or chapter 13, verse 8. And there will also be a period launched by what we call the abomination of desolation, known as the great tribulation, such as not since the beginning of the world. You see that in Matthew 24, 21. And so these are the, you have a seven-year tribulation period where the church has been taken out, and the first three and a half are what are known as the beginnings of sorrows. It's going to get bad, and it's going to get worse, and it's going to get more intense, and it's going to get more frequent. But then it's going to get real bad and real crazy, unlike anything ever seen, when the abomination of desolation, that's the Antichrist, comes on his scene. He reveals himself halfway through this time, this tribulation time. So today we're going to talk about the beginnings of sorrows, just the beginning. So all of this backdrop, all these things that were spoken, gave Jesus the opportunity to deliver the prophetic message known as the Olivet Discourse. And this, it marks as kind of the short version. You're saying, oh, I'm glad. I'm glad it is. Matthew, Matthew's 24 and 25. Luke covers it in 21, verses 5 through 36. I think it's appropriate to maybe discuss a few guidelines as we study prophecy. These things are helpful for all of us. When we study prophecies, we need to do it in light of the entire Scripture, the rest of Scripture. Especially in this case, we need to do it in light of God's Word as it's written in the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel has been called the backbone of prophecy. Another guideline when we study prophecy is that we always look for a practical application. You know, this isn't just knowledge about the future that doesn't apply to us today in a sense of application. Jesus didn't preach this sermon to satisfy the curiosity of the disciples or even to straighten out their confused thinking. Because four times he says, take heed. Pay attention. Watch. So while we study this address, it can help us better understand future events. We must not make the mistake of setting dates, for instance. Bad mistake that the church has made throughout the centuries of trying to pick the day when the church would be called, when the rapture is going to happen. We also need to keep in mind the historical context. So we, we want to study the prophecies in light of the rest of Scripture. We want to always look for practical application, but we want to keep in mind the historical context. The questions being asked are in a Jewish atmosphere, if you will. It grew out of their great concern about the future of the temple. Remember, they thought everything was going to happen at once. The whole world was going to collapse all at once. And it, and it is, actually, but not, not now. <laughs> That's a whole other. So they're like, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign that are about to be fulfilled? These same questions are being at, have been asked over and over again across the centuries for believers, followers in Christ. Everybody's wondering, you know, this is a crazy world we're living in. Whether you're in the middle of World War I or you're in the middle of World War II or you're in the middle of a great famine or you're in the middle of what's going on right now in our society, when is it all going to end? What's going on here? When is Jesus coming back? When is his promised return? Now Jesus does eventually answer his disciples' questions today, but there's a double perspective in his answers. Some of the events described 
were to be fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem, like we said, they would be already to us, history. And some were to be fulfilled during the time of tribulation, before his second coming. But throughout the entire discourse, notice that Jesus was very concerned about them being ready. If you could pick a date when the Lord was going to come back, you know, theoretically, you could do whatever you wanted to and then start getting your life together the week before, right? I mean, we're not. We're to be ready. We're, we're to be prepared as though he were to come right now. Amen. We live our lives that way. We're not, you know, we're not, we don't want to play games with the Lord. Now, as I was saying earlier, much of Mark chapter 13 in these verses, and we, as we go through verse 5 through 27 in the next couple weeks, it describes the seven-year period of time known as the Tribulation and the Great Tribulation. Sometimes it's put together. Sometimes it's divided when it's referred to. Now in Jeremiah 30, verse 7, it says uh, that the Old Testament prophets wrote about this period that was coming, and they call it the time of Jacob's trouble. Alas, for the day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble but he should be saved out of it. It's also called a time of wrath. Wrath. Zephaniah 1.15 That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Not a good day. It's also described as a time of indignation and punishment. Isaiah 20. 6 verses 20 through 21 says come my people enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you hide yourself as it were for a, a little moment until the indignation is past for behold the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity the earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain so in Mark 13 Jesus He's describing three stages of the tribulation period. You have, first of all, the beginning of the, the tribulation. That's Mark 13, verses 5 through 13, if you're taking notes. Secondly, you have the middle of the tribulation. Mark 13, verses 14 and 18. And then third, the events that lead to the end of approaching Jesus' coming. Mark 13, verses 19 through 27. Now, at the end of... Mark 13, he's going to tell two parables. And that urges us. When we see those two parables here in about three, four weeks, he, it urges us as believers to watch and to take heed. Now, speaking for myself, I, I need to tell you this. I, I'm of the camp of prophecy known as pre-tribulation, pre-millennial. That, that's why if you ask me, hey, what do you, what's your position on eschatology, Pastor John? That's it right there. And I'm firmly convinced that believers in the age that we're talking about, the age at the end of the, the church age that we live in, will be raptured by Christ. Whether it's in our lifetime or not, it's a question. But the church age, which is the present age that we're in right now, will be raptured by Christ and taken to heaven before the tribulation begins. Not halfway in, not at the end, before. And then we will return to the earth with Christ and reign with him. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 20. 
That said, neither I nor the leadership here at Calvary Chapel, Elizabeth City, make it a test of orthodoxy or spirituality. In other words, if you don't hold to that view, that view that I just described, that doesn't prevent you from being a part of our church fellowship and fellowshipping at all. We're not ever going to use it as a test of how spiritual you are. Uh, one pastor, Joe Foch, he kind of kiddingly said when he, he explained the position that he had, similar to that, he says, if I'm wrong about this position, I can change my mind when we get to heaven. <laughs> but if you're wrong, you won't be able to. So, yeah, we kind of joke. But, you know, I, I think it's important for all of you. Some of you don't know where you stand. Some of you are learning where you stand. Some of you are going through this midweek study uh, on the book of signs. Maybe that's helping you to, to come to a conclusion on, you know, what you see as the end times and how you interpret it. And I think that's going to be helpful. I think eventually we're all going to, you know, you have, since the curiosity is there, why not go to God's word and learn it? See what the Bible has to say. There's so much to be said on the YouTube and the internet, you know, little snippets of truth. And we really need to dive into these things, I believe. So when we move on to the next part, we're talking again the first half of the tribulation, the beginnings of sorrows. And he says, don't be deceived. It says, and Jesus answering them began to say, take heed that no one deceives you. Notice he doesn't give them the details about what's going to happen. He's first of all giving them a warning. He wants them to know, don't be deceived. The word is for us as well. Don't let, to be deceived is to be led astray by somebody's charismatic, maybe, I'm not talking about charismatic, excuse me, somebody's charisma, somebody's being led astray by the power of their personality to take you to the wrong place. You remember uh, years ago, encyclopedia salesmen, you know, they were, man, they would lead you astray, I'll tell you. You'd be paying like out of your paycheck. I'm like a little E3 in the Coast Guard. You know, I'm paying all this money out of, the, out of my paycheck every week to get this encyclopedias. And it's like, man, if I'd have known the future that I wouldn't need paper in 30 years. <laughs> you know, it's so easy to be led astray, you know. Anyway, you didn't need those set of encyclopedias, John. But Jesus warned his disciples. He says, you need to be, you need to actually not just think about not being deceived, but you actually need to guard against being deceived. A person can be easily deceived when dealing with end times prophecies. Or a person can be easily deceived when facing end times events. We look around us. I mean, it's crazy. When are you going to get a gun, honey? <laughs> when are you going to do something? I've heard that before. I don't know where. <laughs> you, can, you can be deceived into thinking that certain cataclysmic events are infallible signs that the end is at hand. What this results in sometimes, and, and he, Jesus is going to talk about it in verse 7, but what this results in is you get these wild guesses about the end times. Universal predictions in the deceiving of others. But you know what it does? It's discouragement to your faith. It can be very discouraging when the end doesn't happen. And I could give you countless uh, examples. I don't have, I'm not prepared to do that today. But there have been many. One of the most recent was a pastor in California 
who passed away, I think, in 2012 or 2013 um, by the name of Harold Camping. And this guy, he would get on his radio, and he had a very uh, widespread radio program. Some of you know it. And it was all international radio program. And he was predicting the end of the world. He was predicting Christ was going to come for his church. And then, you know, it didn't happen, and of course he died. That kind of stuff has happened, and, and it just, it can be very discouraging. So we need to be very mindful and Jesus says, he, now he goes on to the warning in verse 6, he says, For many will come in my name saying, I am he, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah. And will deceive many. You know, sometimes you look at situations, you go, how can people believe this? <laughs> you see it all the time, deception taking place. Luke 21, 80 says, and this is, take heed that you not be deceived. For many will come in my, my name saying, I am he. The time has drawn near. Therefore, Jesus tells him, uh, them and us, do not go after them. Because they're trying to set a date. You and I have, we've, we've certainly had notable examples. Notable examples of false messiahs and false prophets in our times. Over 800 people lost their lives by following the command to drink poison Kool-Aid from Jim Jones. Many people were killed in a fire destroyed their compound in Waco, Texas because of following David Koresh, who claimed that he was the Messiah. Over 30 suicides took place in Los Angeles, California among the group called the Heaven's Gate. And information, you, you hear, you learn a story about that. And it's, it is creepy, let me tell you. It's scary, the things they believe. They have interviews of these people talking about the fact that they're going to die. They're going to kill. They're going to go ahead and give their lives up because they believe this comet's going to come and whisk them off. And the reason is, is because these people were barren in their souls. Their thirst for meaning and purpose caused them to follow these so-called messiahs. And Jesus warned us not to be deceived by such false prophets as these. But, you know, if it's bad now, and we can make a list, and it seems to happen more and more, and you hear about it, during the tribulation, it's going to be way more numerous. What do you think is going to happen after the church is called out of the world? You know, and, they, and the press tries to manages to somehow whitewash it. What do you think people are going to be saying? Think of the constant examples you and I have today. You have false messiahs that can take the form of faith healers or even politicians. See, everything's political now. You, you, everything's political. Everything's racial now pointing to themselves as the answer to all of people's hopes, dreams, and problems, promising a utopian state. And many people will follow, but it's not the true Messiah. 2 Timothy 3.13, he said, Paul wrote, he says, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So it's not going to turn around. In the, in the big picture of things. I'm not saying revival can't happen. We pray for revival. But in the big picture, as God's calendar moves forward, it will get worse and worse. And in, during the tribulation, it's going, to be, it's going to be unbelievably worse. He says, 
Many will come in my name and deceive many. That means numerous or great. I mean, we can list the false teachers and, and you can make a comprehensive list, but it's not even that numerous as it's going to be. In verse 7, he says, But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. Whoa. You see, that was his answer to them because their concern was all these things were going to happen at once. But notice the use of plurals. He says, wars and rumors of wars. Do not be troubled. Do not be frightened. Do not think that you have to storm the capital or whatever thing else troubles you and what you think you need to do to fix it. He says, but the end is not yet. The end of what? The end of the messianic birth pangs. You know, it's, gonna, it's like a woman in labor. Things get, I'm not going to speak as a woman, and it is Father's Day, so give me, a, give me a break. But it does get worse and worse and more intense, right? He says in verse 8, For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Here, here we see individual nations and kingdoms comprised of many nations. And that's so interesting when we read our prophecy, when we study the, uh, the uh, prophets of, uh, you know, the prophecy of Ezekiel and Daniel. And there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. Now, this is all, you know, we, we say, yes, I see this in history. You know, I remember Mount St. Helens. I, I was there in San Francisco when the Embocadero came down, all that, whatever. But in the tribulation, it's going to be way worse. It's going to be more frequent. So, some people, it's just sort of like this tendency to think, um, you know, the tribulation period is seven years, and the first three and a half is going to be eh, kind of mild, relatively peaceful. Well, that's because the nation Israel has signed a treaty, and they're at peace. But the world's not going to be peaceful. <laughs> We, we look at uh, what we studied last week uh, from Ezekiel 38 about a northern alliance of nations from you know, around the Russia area coming down and Arab nations coming down and actually trying to invade Israel because she's now an unwalled city, Jerusalem, and because they've signed a treaty and, and because they think they're safe. You know, they're in the land, they're prosperous, now they think they're safe. They must have given up their nuclear weapon. And so this... You know, uh, Northern Alliance comes down to invade, and of course there's this great earthquake that, that can be felt around the entire globe. Not one you just read about, one you felt. I mean, your friend in China felt it the same place you felt it here. Did you feel that? <laughs> it was happening. And they would be wiped out by God. You know, they would, the whole story is amazing. I'm not going to go into the scriptures for that, but that's going to, you know, likely that's going to happen either right after the rapture, before the seven-year tribulation, a period of time, or during that first three and a half years. So the first three and a half years are not going to be easy. The beginnings of birth pangs, where you have wars and earthquakes and famines, um, they're going to be, in, they're going to pick up in intensity, like I was saying. For over 2,000 years, we've been expecting the end times to begin. And we've seen, you know, a shadow, a foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the tribulation because things are picking up in, in intensity. 
But Jesus is foretelling a time when it's going to get real. Uh, moms and dads, especially you dads, getting ready to have your first child, if you're, if you're listening, you will be astounded at how quickly things change. Trust me, when you have your first child. You know, all that time waiting and everything, you know, and then the pain of birth and all that, and then finally, boom, everything changes. <laughs> what a blessing. Now, in parallel with the tribulation being described here by Jesus, the book of Revelation describes several massive earthquakes that, that make any previous earthquake look minor. Look at Revelation 6, verses 12 through 14. He says, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. You hear about blood moons and people talking about all that stuff. Well, here it's going to be real. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. <laughs> right now, God restrains the cosmos. He controls things. And, and then he's going to allow things to go a little bit haywire. It says, then the sky receded in a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. That never happened in the past, by the way. No history of that. One writer put it this way, in addition to wars and earthquakes, there will also be famines. Throughout history, a reality that again prefigures the ultimate devastation to the very end. During the tribulation, famine will contribute to billions of deaths as one-fourth of the world's population perishes. Revelation 6. The various natural disasters that are part of God's judgment during the tumultuous time, including the poisoning of a third of the world's fresh water supply, Revelation 8, will severely affect the vegetation and ecosystems of the earth. The result will be a massive loss of human life. I wonder if people in the uh, green and environmental movement ever read any of this stuff. I mean, you know, I'm sure they do. So, you know, again, now's a good time, though. Now is a good time to remember our practical application of prophecy. And what is that? That we're not to be troubled. We are not to be troubled. The word troubled means to be terrified, frightened, disturbed, alarmed, crying out with, within one's inner being. And three things can happen to the believer in looking at worldwide trouble. Think about it today before you turn your phone back on and go on social media or turn on the TV or the radio. Think about three things that can happen to you and I when we look at the world around us. First of all, we become so overly affected by the news of world affairs and turmoil. We, it, it just consumes our life. It takes up all of our time. It can become so interesting, and it is and captivating that it can dominate a believer's life. He begins to live and thrive on the news. Next, the believer can become overly apprehensive about the personal safety of himself and his family. <laughs> I'm not trying to say there aren't real concerns, my dear. <laughs> if you knew the conversations uh, we had, a little transparency. You don't like being in a sermon, do you? I, I didn't think so. Okay. Um, 
But a believer can become overly apprehensive and about the personal safety of himself and his family. He can, begin to, he can begin to fear so much that he forgets that his security is in God, not in this world. Fear over world affairs tends to emphasize the importance of the earth over the importance of God. It tends to emphasize the worldly over the spiritual. The world, of course, is important, but what needs to be stressed is the spiritual. Also, the believer can become so troubled over world affairs that he neglects his spiritual duties. The believer is naturally concerned over the world, as all people should be. We should be. And I think it is it's our duty to do what's right and to participate in society and to do the things that are right. But he's not to allow world affairs to interfere with his witnessing for Christ. That's a trap that a lot of us are in right now. We would rather stand outside the door, and I've been a part of the conversations, okay, so I'm not pointing the finger at anybody, because when you point a finger, there's three pointing back at you. But, uh, I, you know, I, we can be in here, and we can be talking about future events. We can talk, be talking about prophecy and, and encouraging one another with it. And yet we can go right out the door and start complaining about the world that fast, Right? It's, so, it's our thing, man. I'm, and I just want to encourage you guys. I want to encourage myself. Let's purpose to be encouraging. It's easy to talk about the world. It used to, it used to be just weather and baseball, but now it's, some, it's all, everything. You know, it's crazy. I don't mind talking about baseball. A little bit. But you know what I'm saying? We can, it can become so troubled over world affairs. But we don't want it to interfere with what God's called us to do. And that's to bring the good news of the gospel to the people around us. To witness for Christ no matter what's going on in the world. You know, if you know Jesus now as your Lord and Savior, you're going to go, He's going to call you out of this wrath. You will not endure God's wrath. But there will be millions of tribulation saints that will have to take a real stand. And it will likely cost them their head. And yet they'll do it. Because persecution is going to be so intense. But Jesus says, don't be discouraged. He says, watch out for yourselves in verse 9, for they will deliver you up to councils and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. So again, here's a warning. And every single one of them, the apostles will be the very first to suffer persecution ever since there's been a nonstop persecution of the church but these 12 apostles would be the very first ones to do it they would suffer acts 5 40 it says they agreed with them and when they called for the apostles they'd beaten them they commanded that they should not speak in the name of jesus and then they let them go the animosity towards god and to the gospel will be magnified during the tribulation revelation 9 excuse me 6 9 through 11 when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. These are the tribulation saints. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer 
until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. Verse 10, Jesus says, The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. In other words, proclaimed openly to all the nations, ethnos, all ethnicities, all people. We continue to pray and support worldwide missions. When you walk down that hall, look to the left, and you'll see some of the folks we support. Pray for them, for the missionaries and the Bible translations. Pray for child evangelism fellowship as we reach out to the community around us with the gospel and the schools. Now, during this time when the, this tribulation, as we said, the church will have been removed from the earth at the rapture, and much but not all of the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit will be removed as well. But there will be countless people, as we said, left behind who will still hear the gospel. Mark 24, 14. Jesus says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So even in the tribulation period when the church has been raptured and the Antichrist is wreaking havoc, writes one writer, the Lord will raise up his witnesses in the world, including 144,000 believing Jews, and you see that in Revelation 7, two resurrected witnesses, Revelation 11, an angel from heaven who continually proclaims the good news of salvation, Revelation 14, as well as the regenerated believers from every nation, Revelation 7. So even though the church is taking out during the tribulation, the gospel will be proclaimed. Some people believe it will be one of the greatest revivals and harvest of souls ever in all of history. Jesus says in verse 11, but when they arrest you, when this happens, you know, and he's, again, he's speaking to them in their lives. He's speaking to us in our time. And he's speaking to the tribulation saints in their time. He says, when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate on what you're going to speak. You don't have to keep your, your Bible memory verses. Imagine, in other words, pre, premeditate means don't imagine what to say. But whatever's given to you in that hour, speak that. But of course, that's uh, never an excuse for those who teach the Bible not to be prepared. Because he's talking about then. He says, for it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. See an example in Acts 4.13. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. He says in verse 12 that brother will betray brother to death. There will be betrayal, betrayal that leads to death. Imagine your family, uh, you see it, unfortunately it's tragic, you see uh, family uh, tragedy that results in death in, within a family due to, due to uh, turmoil. But this is, we're talking about 
persecution for Jesus within a family. And it's going to lead to death. The practice will seep into the family and be widely practiced. In other words, increasingly. Increasingly, uh, the kids or the parents or the grandparents will kill other members of their family if they witness for Christ. It says, And a father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. So persecution can and in the future will often originate from family members. We get a little glimpse of that today in our society when we see parents being sued over issues like gender and sexuality. And we see the society, the officials in society and the courts even sometimes siding. You'll notice that people in the church today are, are often called haters. And those are deadly words. And they would have deadly consequences someday. Imagine what it's going to be like and be thankful that you will not be here when it becomes common that even your loved ones would commit murder against the name of Jesus. And then in verse 13 he says, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Every single apostle, 11 of them at least, and died a violent death at the hands of people and the authorities. John was isolated on the island of Patmos, and he, he, but it were attempts on his life. But the last half of verse 13, Jesus says, But he who endures to the end shall be saved. He's talking about endurance. To endure means to abide under, to remain in place instead of leaving. Oftentimes Jesus tells us just to stand still, just to stand, especially in spiritual armor situations, to abide in him. You say, well, what am I doing? Why am I not going to go to D.C.? Or why am I not going to get out there and change the world? Well, maybe the Lord's calling you to do that. But here in this case, he says, if you endure, that means you're going to remain. If you're going to do that, you need to do that while you abide in Christ. And it's an active thing. John 15, 18 through 20, Jesus said, if the world hates you, you will know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Those who are truly his disciples will be motivated by their love for Jesus and it's not going to matter what kind of hardship comes upon them. You, you may look and say, I don't know if I could do that, Lord. Because of our faith, our faith is weak. But we, you know, Even the faith of a mustard seed. But we know that the Lord has always been there for us when we cried out to him. And so when you see the martyrs today and you see the martyrs through history, you know that he empowers them and he enables them to endure. 
But things are going to get much worse. That's why it's called the tribulation for the professing believer. But you know what? The reward remains. So the words of the Lord apply both to the disciples of his day and all the disciples who were to follow in succeeding generations, including ours. As long as the earth stands, the disciples of the last days or the, the last ages, you know, the, 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 the age that we're in, the church age, will face many of the same signs faced by those who experienced the destruction of Jerusalem. But there will be one difference. At the end of the world, the signs will increase and they will intensify. The day is coming so terrible that it can be called the beginnings of sorrows and the great tribulation, which we'll talk about next week. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you do. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word, Lord, and your truth. Everybody wants to know the future, Lord, you know our nature. We want the answers. And so, Lord, we look to you and we place all of our trust, all of our hope in you and for the answers that you choose to provide us, Lord. We thank you for your loving kindness. We thank you for the hope that you give us. Help us to be a better witness in the world around us, Lord. Help us not to put things out of priority and not to get troubled to the point where we can be where we're ineffective for you you could calm the storm you you, you could you know the, the apostles were in the boat and the storm was raging and you just spoke a word in it it was calming and you do that now and you do that for us all the time so lord we thank you for your loving kindness we thank you for your hope we thank you for your help and as we get ready to join together for communion, Lord, we ask that you would prepare our hearts for that. As we meditate now, uh, turning our mind toward another prophecy that you gave us, as you prepared the meal, the Passover meal, and as you prepared your, the apostles to partake of the bread and the, the wine together, Lord, let us shift our focus now to your prophetic words that are still practiced to this day. It's because you put it in motion. It's because of the new covenant that we have. It's because you died on the cross and your body was broken and your blood was shed on our behalf. And so we want to remember that now. We want to commemorate that. We want to keep it as a memorial of what you've done and yet know that it's the hope of the future that you prophesied for us. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for all that you do. Go before us now. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.